Well, it has been a while since we've been in Acts, so let me just do some of what I think for some of you who are maybe avid Bible students and be like, I already know this stuff. That's okay. We need to catch everybody up. Is that all right? The date was about 50 AD, 50 AD, 50 AD, okay? So just within the lifetime of like, so I moved here in 2009, it's now 2020. So the time between I moved here and the day I'm here right now is about, about the same amount of time, uh, same time I met you, Will. And now, that's how much time has passed since Jesus had ascended into heaven. That's not a long, and it feels like it's, it's been forever, but it's also been really short, been really quick, right, you know? So not much time has passed, all right? And there was this event that happened, <laughs> 50 AD. It was the first big church meeting. We talk about church meetings. It was called the Jerusalem Council. Acts 15 is a scriptural account of the details of what would eventually be remembered as probably the first church business meeting. And here's the backstory. To set things up, it's important to know that when people first started coming to Jesus, everybody was of Jewish descent, okay? Everybody had the same background. They had grown up in strict religious homes, so they were familiar with Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. They had, all of them had some sort of connection with the original disciples. They spoke the same languages. They had the same customs. They all grew up going to the synagogue. And, and it was a really, really good thing. I'm not, like, I'm not saying that as if that was a good thing, a bad thing. That's actually a really good thing. But you just need to know that this is kind of the context of what was happening. But so that, was, that was the early church followers. But then what happened was there was an explosion of growth. The problem was that some of the new people who were choosing to follow Christ as a result of the disciples preaching the gospel, they were not Jewish by birth. They were not Jews. And back in those days, those kind of people were referred to as what? Gentiles. Gentiles. So, as more and more people were exposed to the truth of the gospel of Jesus, there was, <laughs> there was literally kind of this chaos that was happening in the church because of all of these non-Jewish people who were kind of coming in to this faith of the way of Jesus Christ. And then they were bringing their customs and their their ways of eating and their ways of dressing, their ways of talking and their ways of thinking. They were kind of bringing that with their faith in Christ into what is this community of faith at the time called followers of the way, but now we call ourselves Christians. And whether it was right or wrong, the early Jews who became followers of Jesus assumed that this was the process someone became a follower of Jesus. They assumed this. First, you become a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. You want to be like Jesus, then you should become a Jew. Then you could become a Christian. So that's where we're at, okay? Otherwise, if I didn't say that, and it's been a while since we've been in Acts, I'm going to read verse 1. We're going to read verse 1 and be like, man, these guys are kind of legalistic. I don't like these guys. Well, and we'll find this out later. Um, these guys are actually not unlike us today. But we'll talk about that later. But you got the context now. We have a little bit of grace, okay? 
Acts 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. On this side of the beginning, by the way, I just stopped at verse 1. Some of you are like, we are in trouble. (laughs) It's not going to go like this. But on this side of the beginning of the New Testament, most people familiar with the Bible would say, this is obviously wrong teaching, right, Phil? Like, these guys who are saying this, this is wrong. I mean, it's obvious. (laughs) The problem is, when you look at the history of the church, it wasn't so obvious to them. Look at this, verse 2. After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some of the Others were appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this issue. When they had been sent on their... See, it's like it's an issue. Like it's an... It's, oh, like an issue. Right? This is a big deal. Verse 3. When, when they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. Phoenicia and Samaria. These are areas that were a lot of... Gentiles. So like they're gathering this intel. Like, are these people really Christians? Like, oh, like how did they become Christians? Let's do this. And they were, and listen, and they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. Okay, that, that was there. That was the joy. The joy is they're walking. And then when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. This is the equivalent of us uh, back in the day when we used to have screens, right? Remember we used to have screens and we used to be able to video um, and (laughs) we could show testimony videos, right? We could show testimony videos and and talk about all the wonderful things that God has done. And usually what do we do, right? Right? The video goes on when we have baptisms and someone gets baptized and once they get baptized and they come out of the water, what do we do? Um, nobody does this. Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, um, I think they need to be circumcised. What? That's what he says. Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. I I don't know about you, but, uh, guys, I don't, you know, that just sounds like, a, like above the line. And those of you who study the Bible know that there are not just ten commandments, right? Not, there's just ten commandments that, that, that Moses got. But in the Old Testament, there are actually over 600 different commands of Moses. The Pharisees were basically saying that in order to become followers of Jesus, you had to learn these 600 commands And then change the way you eat. You had to change the way you dress. And there are certain parts of your body that you were not allowed to keep. And you basically had to change your entire worldview and way of living in order to become a Christian. This is crazy stuff. (laughs) And this this was the debate. What What do you have to do and how good do you have to be in order to be part of the church. This was the debate. Who could be part of the church? And there was great drama. I 
I, I'm not going to lie to you. When you read this and you study this, there was a lot of drama going on in the early church. I know a lot of people are, in, in, are just infatuated with like, let's get back to the early church. It was so simple. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. I read the Bible about the early church. They do this. And you read like Corinthians where they had people celebrating that sons were sleeping with their mothers-in-law. Like, what? So what the? You want to go back to early church? That's what you want? No. Okay. But in wherever there's drama that exists, right? Inside any kind of organization or community or maybe family. If there's, fam- if there's drama in your family. I don't know what kind of house you grew up in. If you got in a fight with your brother, you got in a fight with your sister. What usually happens? There's a meeting called, right? Everybody in here now. Everybody get here, get here. Get here now. Everybody in here now. And this is what happened. A meeting was called. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders gathered to consider this matter. Mom and dad are about to have a talk before they, before they start interviewing the kids. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. What you need to understand is that Peter here is saying something very deep theologically. Something I believe all people who consider themselves followers of Jesus are going to have to wrestle with. What is that? Well, look at verse 8. In God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them, who's them in this context? The Gentiles, giving them the Holy Spirit. This is offensive. Just as he also did to us. No, Peter. We were in that upper room. Remember the fire that came down? And we were like, I, mean, I don't know if I'm totally making that up. But they were speaking all these other tongues and people were hearing. And, and, and no, that's not the same Holy Spirit. Not that same one. Oh, yes. Yes. The same Spirit that fell on us fell on them. Do you know that God can know the heart of a person before you can? Did you know that? Did you know that God can do something significant inside of someone before you and I can see with our own eyes the effects of something that God is not only doing but in many cases has already done. Do you believe that God can begin to transform a person's life even before the fruit of transformation is evident to others? Do you believe that? Now don't misunderstand me. I'm a fruit inspector just like every other dad who has a teenage kid who hears about new friends or potential romantic interests. Oh my goodness, 
son's coming home telling me about girls that like him. I'm like, what? Who's this girl? Where's she from? Who's her mama? Who's her daddy? <laughs> What's your GPA? <laughs> right? I'm a fruit inspector, just like all the rest of you. Right? We're all fruit inspectors. Now, maybe you're not like me. Maybe you're better than me. Right? I hope you are. Maybe you don't struggle like I do. Maybe there isn't something in you like me that wants to skip over the fact that there can be internal change in a person without external evidence for a while. Peter said these people didn't know the over 600 laws. Many didn't even know 10, much less one. But they embraced Jesus as Savior and the Holy Spirit came down And God knew their heart. Like, God knew them. And he did something. And they didn't even have time yet to manifest this kind of fruit that the Jews were looking for. And so verse 9, he goes on to say this, he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. If I could paint this in more contemporary terms, what we're reading could sound like this. The Pharisees are going like, you know, come on, Peter. Okay, maybe they have purified hearts. But look at their habits. Look at them. Look at them. That's not Jewish. Look at that. Look what she's wearing. My wife would never wear that. And my wife's a good Jew. Christian Jew. Okay? And come on. Jesus was the greatest example of the purified heart. Jesus was a Jew. Therefore, don't you think that the kind of people God would want to be followers of Jesus should be more Jewish? Come on, Peter. (laughs) Hey, I know. I walked on water, but I'm not here to brag, but I'm just telling you. (laughs) I saw what I saw. I heard what I heard. These Gentiles heard the gospel They believe the gospel. And catch this. And I can't tell you how. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Verse 10. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? (laughs) This This is great. If you don't catch this, right? It, sometimes it's, it's hard to miss this. This is actually really good. Grab your popcorn and uh, watch what's about to happen type of material, okay? When Peter's like, now then, why are you... T-? If, if you had popcorn, if you know that expression, grab your popcorn and watch what's going to go happen. Here's what's happening. Peter is basically saying, look, before we get all geeked out on how much these Gentiles don't look like us Jews, seriously, <clears throat> uh, how well do you keep the law? Yeah, uh, hey, uh, Josh, and not you, Josh, we have many of them here, but I'm just making up a name. Yeah, uh, you, Josh, over there, uh, I saw you bring a pigeon the other day as an offering, so we all know you did something wrong. (laughs) Yeah, we saw it. Let's be honest, we're not even good at keeping the law of Moses, and we want to impose a standard of rules and regulations we grew up with. (laughs) that we can't even keep. That's what, that's what Peter was saying. 
So what happens next? I want to know. You want to know? Here it goes. Verse 11. On the contrary, we believe, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. And here's how you know Peter was right. The whole assembly became silent. (laughs) They were like, and listened to Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Then in the next verses, we see a man by the name of James, the leader of the church, by the way, the brother of Jesus. We don't even have time to talk about the significance of that, but anywho, you've heard me talk about that before. James gets up, and according to one Bible scholar, makes two basic points, okay? I'm not going to read that part. I'm just going to give you what it means. One, it's God's idea to include the Gentiles, to choose them as his people, Two, this is all according to God's plan. It's God's idea to include the Gentile, and this is his plan all along. And this was told, by the way, the writing of the prophets, that every Jew has grown up reading. In other words, y'all should have known better. And then James, just James, 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 uh, and then James says something that literally is one of the verses that drives why what we do as a church. And here it is. If you've been around for a while, you've heard me quote this. Uh, and this may or may not be the social media password for one of our accounts. I'm just saying. Now I need to go change it. Acts fifteen nineteen. <laughs> Therefore, in my judgment. We should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. In other words, James is saying, look, I've heard all the arguments. I understand the law, just like you do. I know how important the law is. Don't get me wrong. But here's my summary of the whole thing. We should not make it difficult In other words, we should remove all the obstacles there is to those who are turning to God. If someone is turning to God, let us make it easy for them, not difficult. Now these next verses are the verses that most of us just kind of read through. And and we can't even imagine the emotion that was kind of associated with the implications of what James says. Remember where this conversation started, over 600 laws and an imposition of surgery to all a bunch of Gentile men, okay? This is where this conversation started. Verse 20, James says this, don't make it difficult, but instead we should do this. We should just write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, that sounds good, uh, and from eating anything that has been strangled and from blood. Okay, boom. By the way, for since ancient times, Moses had had those who proclaim him in every city and every Sabbath day he is read aloud in the synagogue. So, we got three things here. 
And really, two of them really don't have anything to do anything more with than, than not doing things publicly that offended Jewish Christians that already lived among these Gentiles. So wait, 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 wait. okay. Wait, <coughs> James, so you're telling me that all that we're going to do is we're going to, we're just going to ask them to abstain from sexual immorality and, and they can be part of the church? Like that's all they need to do? Like just, like just stay away from sexual immorality and then they can just like be part of the church? Like what about the rule every Jew knew, every, every Jew knows since they were born, you know, like the thou shalt not eat or drink on Yom Kippur. Like we all know that it's Yom Kippur. They be eating, they be drinking. Like isn't that important? James, uh, nah, let's just give them one commandment. Just one commandment. You know, just tell them to abstain from sexual immorality because, you know, sexual immorality, that just really complicates things. And if they abstain from sexual immorality, just, just go ahead and let them in. Just, just go ahead and let them in. Okay, James, what about the rule to not appear at the temple without offerings? Deuteronomy 16, 16, there's that rule. We gotta, we gotta bring offerings to the temple. Can you imagine the Jews hearing this? Yeah, I get that, and you should, because you're Jewish. Uh, where's your offering, by the way? You got it? You know what? You're right. Sexual immorality isn't enough. Now that I think about it, how about this? No sexual immorality, and let's try not to have them continue offend the Jews in the area by what they eat and what they drink. Yeah, I think that sounds pretty good. What do you think, Paul, Barnabas? Yeah, uh-huh, good, good. Peter? Yeah, mm-hmm, all right, all right, good. That's it, that's what we're gonna do. And I don't know, I don't know what you notice, but that's making it really easy for those turning to God to be part of the church. I don't know if you understand that. And how did that kind of news go over? Well, if you read down, you skip down. Verse 30 so they were sent off and went down to Antioch, and after gathering the assembly, they delivered the letter. They wrote this decision in a letter, and they sent it to these Gentiles. And so when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Okay. Okay. If you've been around Clarity for a while, you know I love this passage. And because it has been a while... I think it's very important for us to stop and just talk a little bit about what this passage means for us who calls ourselves clarity. Because this is also very interesting because 200 years ago, the very first church struggles with what we now know is a gravitational pull towards some very unhealthy things. The truth is that we even struggle with these things and the big problem is that if we ignore these things, the worse things get because things don't get healthier through neglect. Your plants don't get any less dead looking if you just say, I won't look at them anymore. Right? It, do, it, it, it doesn't work that way. And there's so much you could pull from this text. But today, I want to try to just talk about three observations and then offer some initial thoughts on how we as a church can combat these, what I will call, temptations. So, based on this passage of scripture, here's the thing that I, I pull away. First, there's this temptation that 
Churches gravitate towards insiders and away from outsiders. We gravitate towards insiders and away from outsiders. The reason this happens is because it's mostly insiders that are part of a church's gathering. I've, I've literally heard this before. Like, if I feel, why are we working so hard to do this or do that? Or, you know, there's some things that we try to do that are a little bit, uh, you know, like, you know, it's just us. Like, we never get any visitors. First of all, I'm going to slap you. Second of all, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. Third of all, you know, I think, I think that's, a, that's a bigger problem that we don't have visitors. But anyways, that's another sermon. The reason why we gravitate towards inside and outside is because that's what naturally happens. And listen, if you become an attender, even if you're new and you decide to stick around, after about a year, guess what? You're an insider now. And people who have never attended our gatherings never have anything to say about our gatherings. Surprise, surprise. I never get calls or emails from people who don't join our gatherings here in person or watch online saying things like, you know, I really think we should have more worship. They don't know that we only do two songs in the beginning and one at the end, and then maybe three in the beginning and none at the end. You know, I think the lighting and the camera angle on the stream looks a little unnatural, Phil. (laughs) They don't know that because they're not watching, they're not here. I really don't like saying hi to visitors and going out of my way to make them feel welcome because then I can't talk to my friends and I'm introverted, so, you know, that means I get a pass, right? And by the way, that's what you're for, Phil, right? You're supposed to talk to... And it it makes sense. I got grace, trust me. Because the gravitational pull, right, is what? Towards what? Insiders. I get it. There's tons of grace. But a church that ignores the reality of this temptation to gravitate towards insiders and away from outsiders over time slowly turns back to the world and begins to sing and preach to themselves. This was the issue in the local church 200 years ago. Who gets to be a part? How difficult can we make it? How open should we be? And this is a tragedy because the church began as a movement of people who had their faces towards those in their community disconnected from God. They remember Jesus saying, Go! into all the world. And they did. They were the kind of people who said God has done something so significant, not only inside of us, but among us. Jesus has risen from the dead. And we want people to know that there is freedom from sin and life Everlasting. In order for God to accomplish his mission in the world, we have to have churches filled with people committed to making it easy for people who are, at a minimum, looking to belong. (laughs) And listen, I know it's messy to live like that. It's inconvenient to live like that. But every church and every Christian has a decision to make at some time. They can either isolate themselves from the messes or walk towards them. Clarity, we walk towards 
the messiness of what is relationships. And I know it could be awkward, but remember, we embrace the awkward. Second temptation, churches gravitate towards law and away from grace. And I'm not talking theologically, okay? I'm talking about relationally. On the theological side, I think I'm around a church that isn't too harsh on the whole law. But I'm talking about relationally. We just got out of a series called Friendology because really this is, this is still a thing on my heart. We've got to figure this out. See, law is easy, right? Law is easy. I give you a list of what you need to do so I don't have to talk to you. There's a list, you follow this, and then if you follow the list, then we're all the same. That's good, all right. It's easier to make a point than to make a difference. If we're the same, then we can get along. Here, you just just do this. Now, I don't know why you decided to follow Jesus and get involved with being a part of a local church, but listen, I didn't get involved in ministry to make points. I wanted, be honest with you, I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to make a difference. And I hope especially those of you that have been hanging around here for eight years. Eight years, goodness gracious, come this fall. I hope that, I hope my life has made a difference in yours because listen, yours has made a difference in mine. Yours, your life has made a ton of difference in mine. Honest. And do you know why many people choose to stop being part of a local church? Not because they were overwhelmed by grace, is because someone put an optical in front of them that says, you don't measure up. Jesus was never concerned by guilt by association. He ate with sinners and didn't consider that it meant he condoned their life of sin. Jesus was full of grace and truth and walked towards messes so he could make a difference. Jesus didn't come to make a point. He came to make a difference. If Jesus came to the world to make points, he could have been here for just about 90 minutes. And trust me, They would have been awesome points. Third temptation, churches gravitate towards complexity and away from simplicity. This we have learned very much so through this last year. But here's what you know in your business or your workplace. Here's what you know in your everyday life. Complexity slows things down, right? Things get, it feels, it feels, when there's complexity, it just feels like overwhelming, right? It feels like you're trudging through things. It's also more expensive. If you have your kids signed up for every single thing, and you're doing every single thing, and you're signed up, right? It's also more expensive. Complexity is expensive. And for a local church, here's what it does. Complexity, if we're not careful, can make us lose our distinctiveness. The question I think I have been reminded to ask is this, especially through COVID. What do we really want people to miss about us if we ever went away? Like real, like what would I hope that the people in our circles of influence, my neighbors, this community, what do they, what do I actually want them to miss about us if we ever went away? What do we want them, especially non-Christians, but the Christians too? What do we want them to think about us? You know, instead of asking this, churches often say things like, you know, you know, we need to get better. (laughs) And you know what? We're missing some stuff. 
So let's start some new stuff. I was over at this one church. They got this thing. We need that thing. We should start that thing because people like that thing. I know nobody here knows how to do it, but we could, we just spend money and hire someone who knows how to, we could, we just buy material and then waste all of our time trying to figure out how to do this new thing. We, we need to do more new stuff. And listen, I'm the more new stuff guy. Y'all know that. Love new stuff. More stuff. So I'm preaching to the choir here, but I'm telling you, because I am telling you to keep me accountable. We have to keep accountable. We need to not lose our distinctiveness. We need to not gravitate towards complexity and instead embrace simplicity. Clarity was started so that we could be the first thing in people's minds when they meet someone who isn't really into church but is in need of Jesus. In fact, I've had many people tell me this (laughs) over the years and it's the greatest compliment in the whole stinking world. Hey, Phil, I told my coworker, I told my daughter, I told my nephew, I told my niece, I told my neighbor about your church. They're not a Christian. Yeah, I didn't tell them about my church because, well, mine's too churchy. But I told them about yours because they would fit right in. No, no, I wasn't meaning that you're not a good Christian. I'm, I'm just, that's usually kind of how it goes. But, like, that's a great compliment. Like, yeah, you said yeah, yeah, I, I heard about this person. They, they're, they're gay. They would make it great at your church. My church, no, that wouldn't work. That, that just, you know, they're, they're liberal. They're, they're, they're too conservative, right? Listen, I'm, I, we're all welcome here. You know, that's what I love about our church. Honestly, I mean, in this past year of COVID, I know a lot of you, okay? And I've watched your social medias. We're about as polar opposite as I could see. But you know what I love? Somehow we figured out to still remain unified. And a lot of churches are struggling with that. I've been talking to my pastor friend up, well, I'm not going to say because then you'll be able to know who it is. But he is, he is literally losing his ever-loving mind. I had lunch with him last week and he was crying in his office because his church is losing their mind towards each other about political, sta- I mean, it's crazy. And you know what? I'm proud of you. I'm proud of this church. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of this church. We figured it out. How do we remain unified in diversity? So it's 11:30. Can I make three more points, please? Because I talked about the temptations. I want to talk about how we remove these obstacles. All right, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. First, we need to identify and remove obstacles to outsiders. Listen, it's okay to offend somebody with the gospel. That's not, I'm not saying we never offend people. Trust me, the gospel is offensive. You're a sinner in need of a savior. Now, I'm not going to go around being like, hey, you, sinner. Yeah, you need Jesus. No, that's not how we do it, okay? But the gospel is offensive. Like you and I, on our own, are incapable of pleasing God. <laughs> That's offensive. But listen, we don't, want, we don't want to have any accidental obstacles. You understand what I'm saying? No accidental obstacles. Listen, what if we began to make a list of all the obstacles other than the gospel that kept outsiders from wanting to be with us? What if we were committed to the fact that we believe in the Great Commission? that we believe in hospitality as taught through the scriptures and admit that there are things that we endure and how we do church that are obstacles literally to how 
what we know God has called us to do and be in our community and amongst the people who take the chance to even be with us. 2021, go to church. Some of you saw a good friend of mine, not a follower of Jesus, here. And that one, I was proud of you. You guys said hi and talked to him. And he said, this is great. I'm coming back. So I'm praying for him. Second, we need to be the people who err on the side of grace. When we don't know what we're going to do and it is messy and we know that people are going to be mad no matter what we do, let's err on the side of grace. Because that's what God did for you, by the way. If you call Clarity home, let's just decide today that we are going to be people who err on the side of grace. We err on the side of grace. We err on the side of grace. We err on the side of grace. Of grace. Before we begin to judge who is worthy to be a part of us and who is not, let us err on the side of grace. After all, we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Last but not least, let us focus on our unique calling in the community. This is something COVID has really, really challenged us to think about. It's challenged me to think about. Literally, yeah, I, I am, I'm cha- I've changed a lot of ways about how I think about our church. And if you were to ask me today, Phil, what do you see as Clarity's unique calling in the community? It'll be this. It'll be this. It'll actually be what I already said. <laughs> I hope that we would be the church, the first church in people's mind when they meet someone who isn't really into church but's in need of Jesus. I hope we would be the kind of church that people think of when they meet people who aren't really into the church but are in need of Jesus. Yeah, that, that's, that's that church. And you know what? That metrics, when I really think hard about that, has nothing to do with staging, has nothing to do with lighting, has nothing to do with coffee, in the mornings, it's harder. It has a lot to do with heart to heart, ear to listening, empathy, attentiveness, self-awareness. That thing you do, yeah, it's really weird. Stop doing that. It's harder. Because sometimes it's easier to set up a stage and have nice lights than to rely on your social skills and empathy. And so, how can we do this? How can we be this kind of church? Well, let me suggest some new things. One, we learn the art of friendship. We've been talking about this. We learn to be friends with people in our circles of influence who are disconnected from God without agenda. We've got to learn it. I didn't say do it because that seems overwhelming to some of you. I just, just learn. Just learn. Learn. Be committed to learn. Figure that out. Second, learn how to be welcoming to all people while being strong in scriptural convictions. You can do this. You don't have to sacrifice strong scriptural convictions and be welcoming to all people. We welcome the challenge of discovering what it means to only allow the message of the cross of Jesus to be offensive to those who don't look like us, talk like us, vote like us. 
Third, we live life together in such a unique and gospel-centered way that people are attracted to our commitment to one another and towards those that our culture would consider the least and the lowest of intrinsic value. And last but not least, we commit to learning to increasingly submit all of life to Jesus as Master and Savior every single day of our life, day after day after day. That's what we commit to. We commit to learning what it means to submit all of life to Jesus as Master and Savior day after day after day after day.